I want you to imagine you are in your car and you are just cruising. And you've decided you are going to listen today to K-Love or the family radio station or whatever it might be, the Christian radio station. And uh, the music is uplifting and, you know, positive, encouraging. Is that the tagline? Positive and encouraging. It's great for the whole family. Um, if you have kids, you imagine your kids are in the back with you singing along. You're all loving each other. You know, you're like, man, this is awesome, positive, encouraging. We're a family together. And then, uh, you know, um, as you're listening to this Christian radio station, this family radio station, um, they uh, say, today's scripture verse for positive, encouraging, Caleb, is um, from the book of Nahum. And you're ready to receive your positive, encouraging message that's family-friendly. And they read from Nahum, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heart of his anger? Thank you for listening to Positive Encouraging Caleb. And you're like, what is going on? I thought this was supposed to be family friendly. And they read this to me. They let my kids hear this. This indignation. This heart of anger. A God that is wrathful. What is this? This isn't positive. What if I said this to you this morning? What if Nahum argues this to us? What if the mercy and love of God, the positive, the encouraging aspects of God, are shown through His wrath and justice? What if the mercy and love of God is shown through His wrath and justice? As we look at this book of Nahum, which probably is not going to be read on Caleb, let us try to put that in perspective. It's a very poetic book, and minor prophets are. And I hope you would kind of just, if you feel like, you can close your eyes as I read. Just maybe hear the poetry. Hear kind of the alliterations that are used. And kind of the feeling of this passage. Nahum, chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heart of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. 
for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetrated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The word of the Lord. God, this is your word. This is your character. God, as we look at a book that is many times cast off, let us be able to learn from it. Let your word penetrate our hearts and change us and transform us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You must think I'm a glutton for punishment. Reading through a book of like Nahum. What is this guy doing? Did you just pick obscure books? So uh, he can just be on top of his game? No, I think there's a purpose by why we picked Nahum. The reason we did is because we went through the book of Jonah. And Jonah was talking about this city run by the Assyrians um, called Nineveh. And now we want to continue in this theme of Nineveh and this culture of Assyria as we look at it over time, as it's seen in the book of Nahum. And also I've chosen this because it gives us a full picture of God. We got one picture of God in the book of Jonah. Now we see another picture of God and his character in the book of Nahum. And if we remember, as Jonah talked about Nineveh and talked about Assyria, he was mad. <laughs> you know why he was mad? He was mad because God would be gracious to these people. That he would help the Assyrians. And the thing is, at this time, Jonah writing from the northern kingdom, from Israel, Assyria was against the ropes. Israel was expanding. Assyria was decreasing. And now this is the chance for Israel to exert its power. But instead of God condemning this whole nation and the city of Nineveh, instead he gives them grace. They repent and he saves them. And Jonah talks about God's character in a creed that's used over and over again. And it's repeated again here in verse 3. So look with me in verse 3. It's a creed that if you were an Israelite, you had heard it over and over again because it was first spoken to Moses. When God revealed his very self, and Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock and just saw the back of God, and God revealed, this is who I am. This is my character. And he said this, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And we see that this is the character that Jonah reiterated, that this is who God is in the book of Jonah. And this is what he did to the people of Assyria. He was slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious, and he saved this 
city of Nineveh. But what has happened that we get to this book of Nahum? Well, a hundred years have happened. A hundred years have passed away since the book of Jonah was written. And Nahum, we don't really know where exactly Elkosh is. No scholar really does. But we can presume it's probably from the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel was the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the reason we know Nahum came from the southern kingdom, because in this time that this book was written, Israel was destroyed. It was gone. And who had destroyed Israel? Assyria, which the capital city was Nineveh. And they had lived out the character that Jonah had seen. Brutal. Vicious. A nation that would go into an opposing nation, kill its leaders, behead people, take them and move them out of that area into their own place, and then take pagans from other places in the world and then resettle them in those lands so that land would never come back to where it was. In fact, Assyria was so brutal, they would take kings from other nations and they would chain them up and place them at the front of the city of the gates. Like, think about these huge gates of Nineveh. They would place these opposing kings at the front of the gates so that everyone that would walk in to the city of Nineveh would see this is what happens to people that oppose us. Kings are brought to nothing. That is how powerful our nation is. And now Assyria is at the height of its brutality and power. They've already destroyed 50 cities in Judah. And Judah, seeing the writing on the wall, say, okay, we better side with this power, Assyria. And that's what they do. They side with them to go then take on Egypt. And as this book was written, it was written at a time where the city of Thebes, a major city in Egypt, had fallen to Assyria. So here, as Nahum writes, he is writing in a time where Assyria is the ruler of nations, where its kings are the king of kings, where its wrath, if you are under it, it is going to come for you. And it's coming. For Judah. Now you mustn't think Nahum, here he is, he's a prophet in the nation of Judah that is sided with Assyria. Now, and he's writing these things at the height of the power of Assyria. Either Nahum is stupid, <laughs> or people think he's just crazy and just write him off, or he's asking for a death wish that he would write and prophesy such things when it, this was what was happening to Judah. You know, I uh, was intentional in worship over the last month and a half that I used that phrase of the creed of God over and over again. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's a great warm passage, isn't it? That's great. But you know what? I left something out, didn't I? Do you know what the end of that says? It says... The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity. Yet, yet, 
he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Look here, verse 3, it says that very thing. And Nahum points it out. You know, Jonah just picked out the compassionate part. But here, Nahum says, And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You see, part of the character of God is not just his compassion and his mercy. It is also his justice and his wrath. He will not let anyone escape. He will judge. Come on, Nahum. Really? Assyria, this great nation, this one that rules the Middle East, probably the one that is the greatest nation in the known world at that time, how can you say God will judge this place? Judge these people. Judge these kings. Come on, they are so great. There is nothing that God can do. I'm sure because you've studied history, you know, you took your history classes and somewhere along the road, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, some college courses maybe in history, that you guys all know the name of Aruna Benapal, right? And of course, if you don't know that name, you know the name of Sennacherib, right? You know that name too. What? You don't know the great kings of Assyria? You don't know their names? Do you know why you don't know their names? Because 30 years after this book was written, Nineveh was obliterated, destroyed, gone. The king burned in its fire. And the great Greek writers who wrote in 400 B.C., just a couple hundred years later, did not even write that the city existed. It had been wiped from the map. This is crazy because the city of Thebes, you know, that the Assyrians attacked and destroyed, there were still remnants of Thebes that you could see through the millennia and through generations and through centuries. But you know what was left of Nineveh? Nothing. It couldn't be found. In fact, many historians said it never existed. The Bible is just making up there was no great city of Nineveh. Because it is just gone. Not until the 19th century, that is. When archaeologists took the Bible and took writings of the Babylonians who conquered Assyria and said Nineveh existed and actually did digging and finding and in their digging and finding, they found that there was this mighty great city, Nineveh, under the ground. Gone. Obliterated. No more. Our God takes the king of kings and makes them to nothing. The princes of this world are nothing to him. A drop in the bucket, as Isaiah says. When I was in Colorado, you know, a thing you do to show that you've conquered Colorado is this. You climb a 14er, right? There's 50 of them. 14ers are these 14,000 feet peaks, right? And if you want to be a true Colorado and you see how many peaks you can climb. And you, you know, start early in the morning and you go up and uh, the day is usually just beautiful in the morning. And you 
go and you ascend. And here's the thing. You need to ascend before noon. Because as you reach the peak around, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and then you look, usually you're coming from the east and then looking to the west. As you go up to the top of the mountain, you see what is coming towards you. And it's clockwork in Colorado. At noontime, right in the afternoon, the clouds are rolling in. You just see it come in as you're on top of this peak. And you see the lightning hitting. And the truth is, when you're on top of the mountain, you, you're, you know when the lightning's coming because your hair stands on end. And you know it's going to strike at any time. And it's dangerous. Super dangerous. And the thing is, this is what is being talked about. This imagery in the second part of verse 3. Look with me. It says this. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Don't you see, Assyria? You are looking down. Down upon nations like Egypt and Moab and Arabia. You are looking upon those nations when you should look up and you see the storm is coming for you. You think you are conquering lands. I thought I was conquering a mountain. Little do you know you are nothing. As much as you rise, as much as you go up, that God is coming and His storm is great. And He will wipe you out. You know, we've transferred the power of nations now that we're Americans to the power of the individual. We don't talk about nations being great. We talk about our own empowering, don't we? Our own conquering. You know, just read a Tony Robbins book, right? No? The power within, you can do it. Right? Can you reclaim your life? Do you have enough self-power? If I just climb that mountain, I'll be fine. Can you work hard enough? Can you strive enough that God will not find you? Can you step out of the hands of God, out of the whirlwind, out of the dust of His feet that come towards you? No, you cannot. But how we think we can. How Assyria thought they could. We are the ones that rule this world. And our culture tells us over and over again, you can rule your own world. You can do it yourself. Oh, how you are wrong. I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. You hang around a church long enough and it's going to come out. God of wrath, vengeance. You know, I, I like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. You know, I don't like the uh, Nahum God, you know. This is just the duplicity of, of Christianity. Old Testament vengeance and wrath, New Testament love and kindness. This is, this is come on, you're finally getting to really what it is. You've parted the curtain and now we see this is who God is. He's angry. He's mad. He comes after people. You know what? God is supposed to be the one that works for human purposes. 
He's supposed to love us. He's not supposed to bring fire or wrath. I mean, how can I worship a God like that? God's supposed to respect human rights, you know? He's not for death. He's not for all this kind of business about killing nations and people. What is up with this? And now you read this kind of passage? What if, come bear with me here, what if wrath and judgment are an aspect of God's love? In fact, without the wrath of God, God is not loving. Because a God that fails to do anything about evil and to rectify the wrong is deficient. He's deficient in his love for us. And when we think of the word wrath and jealousy and anger, many things pop into our mind. John Stott does a good job of kind of just easing those thoughts. He says this, It does not mean that he is likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, so less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason. That's not what is being talked about. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. Nor is he ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable, because it is provoked by evil, and by evil alone. You see, the opposite of love is not anger and wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. We do not have an indifferent God. We have a God that is what? Look in verse 1. Verse 2, sorry. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. You see, God is just and righteous. And when anything is outside of his justice and the way of his character, he spits it out. It's contrary to the very way the world is supposed to be. That's why he says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he says, if you are outside of who I am, what do I do? I spit you out. I vomit you out. Because you are outside of the character of who I am and how I've created this world. And it makes sense that he would bring vengeance against anything that is against the very character of who he is. Here's the thing. When we think of God as judge, we might think of a judge in our own day, right? The judge that sits up there and he pronounces judgment. You are guilty. You have this and that. That's what a judge does. He pronounces guilt. No, God does more than just pronounce guilt. He also executes His judgment. He also pronounces what will happen and he falls through with it. Would a God who is able to pronounce judgment but not follow through with it really be a powerful God? A loving God? A just God? If you read this, and we're going to go into it next week too, Nahum, but if you look from verse 6, down to verse 15. It, and the NIV does a better job. We have the ESV. But in the NIV, it goes back and forth. 
And it shows you the yous are either talking about Nineveh or they're talking about Judah. And the thing is, there's this battle back and forth that Judah is having. God, are you faithful? Do you care? Will you come to our rescue? Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is Nineveh. And then to Judah, God says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You see, back and forth, God is trying to answer the question that Judah is asking. Are you good? Do you care about a nation that is brutal, that kills us, that has no regard for you, that says we are the rulers of the world? Do you even care? C.S. Lewis, he uh, used to be an atheist, but he kind of came to a position where he believed in God. And the process looked like this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust in the first place? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, in the very nature of who we are and how we're made, because we're made in the image of God, we have a picture of the way the world should be. And we have a God that is trying to rectify it to that very place. Uh, You know, here's the thing. We love vengeance and uh, retribution stories, not in the Bible, but we love them in movies, don't we? (laughs) We love them in movies. I mean, you can write a good character like that, but don't write God like that. And, you know, maybe you're a kind of person that likes these kind of movies of uh, deep um, Irish accents of a guy who uh, has lost his daughter, it's been taken, and uh, he's now on the phone with a person that's taken his daughter. And he says this, I have acquired over a very long career skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you, um, if you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And we all, when we hear that line coming from Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, we go, yes. Yes. Go get her. Take them down. And what if the phone conversation ended after that? He said that and said, okay, that's, I just want to say that. I'm done. No. It would not be a good story. It would not be a loving dad. If he did not go after those that hurt his daughter, a loving God would come after, would rectify. You know, we live in a nation that is based on laws and justice. I'm thankful for that. That those that do evil, usually, in most cases, the law goes after them, and they are punished for it. But there are places where that that is not true. Not to pick on Moy's home country of Mexico, but we saw this in the news just this week, didn't we? 
We saw what happens in some Mexican cities. We saw a lady running for mayor on drug money. Her brothers were part of the cartels. Cartels that beheaded people in the city that stood against them. We saw this lady running for mayor in a pink dress with a huge picture of her in the background, dancing with her husband to be the next mayor of this southern city in Mexico. And just before she had gone to dance in this place, she had said to the officials, the police there, that she had paid off through drug money. Oh, guess what? There's 49 students that have come into the city that are disrupting what we're doing here. Take them. And not until two days ago did we realize what happened to those 49 students. They were not just taken. They were murdered and killed by drug lords. 49 students. While this woman danced to her campaign in a pink dress, she ordered police to take these people and give them to the drug cartels to kill them. And we all complain in the United States, oh, we want forgiveness, we want love, we want a God that hugs us. No, I want a God of justice that punishes such people. A God that says, no, that is not the way the world is supposed to be. If you act this way, I will come against you. A God that says, his way is in the whirlwind, in the clouds, in the dust of his feet, and the Lord by no means will clear the guilty. That is a loving God. A loving God that will punish those who do wrong. believe that? Do you believe there's a God that rights wrongs? There is a God that will bring justice to this world. That all the things that were done wrong will one day be made new. Or do you live with a chip on your shoulder? One of bitterness against maybe those that have done wrong against you. One that says, oh, I am going to pay back what someone's done to me. I'm going to get back at this person. I am going to just have it inside of me. I'm going to live my life to get back at what they have done to me. Or do you believe that there is a God that can perform that justice for you? Are you someone that goes the other way and says, I might as well just give up? I've been beaten down by life. I've been beaten down by others. Whether it's members of my family, whoever it might be, I might as well give up because nothing is going to be rectified. Or do you believe that there is a God that will bring justice? Okay, I made my passionate plea. Let me make a logical one here. My roommate in college he could read through my emotions so quickly, an atheist for four years, and we had fun discussions. He loved watching Bill Maher. I can't stand Bill Maher. I'm sorry. I just don't like Bill Maher, cause, probably because he just bashes Christians over and over again. But he makes some fun arguments. And the thing is, you see, Dan, 
just a conversation I have with my roommate. You see, Dan, this is what's wrong with religion. This is what's wrong. It just brings wrath. It's the idea that God judges places and things, that he's able to destroy nations, things like that. And he says, oh, you know, something happens wrong to a country, or this is God's wrath upon it. It's just, you, you know what, the truth is, the only reason that you don't sound like um, Islamic states and some people in Islamic states is because the Enlightenment. You know, they say the same thing. They say, oh, judgment's going to come upon the United States. God will judge the United States for its, you know, materialism and for all the things we've done. See, Christianity is just the same. The only thing, the reason it's different now is because we finally gotten enlightened in thought. And, you know, most Arab countries haven't gone through that yet. Bill Maher makes the same argument. Hear me. There is a difference between the God of Christianity and Muhammad, God of Allah. And the difference is this. And I'm not saying, listen, I lived with a Muslim family for four months in Kenya. Okay? I still love them dearly. Okay? These are good conversations, not bashing Islam. Okay? I'm saying that there is a difference. And that's why I'm a Christian and not a Muslim. Okay? Because of these differences. The thing is, the difference is this. That God is the one that does his vengeance. Continually in the Old Testament it says this. God is the one that pours out vengeance, not us. He is the one that will do it. He is the one that will get his justice. He is the one that does it himself, not us. And one thing I would say to my roommate is this. If I believe in a God that is the only one that can roll out vengeance, and you believe that there is no God, how do you seek justice? My argument is, you've already done it in the 20th century. We've already tried secular states without God. And what did they do? They sought justice themselves. And when people try to seek justice themselves, they don't stop. <laughs> um, the name is Stalin ring a bell. There is more killed by communist states than any religious state in the 20th century. And here's the difference between Islam and the God of Christianity. You see, we have a God that took his justice out on himself. He brought his wrath upon his son. Muhammad in law teaches that we can bring wrath and justice upon those that are our enemies. Guess what? God put his wrath upon his son so that we would not be called enemies, but that we would be called friends. Do you see that difference? There's a radical difference. So when someone says, oh, Christianity will be a thing that will persecute and bring wrath against people, no. The only one that can truly judge, the only one that can bring guilt against someone is God himself. And we also follow God that has poured out all that justice and wrath that's talked about upon his very son. That is a good God. That is a loving God. Do you remember after that phone call that Liam Neeson made in that Taken movie? He makes that long statement. Do you remember what the guy on the other end says? Good luck. Doesn't that just make you angry? Good luck, he says. 
Good luck trying to get back your daughter. Good luck trying to find vengeance against me. Do you know what I think? I think we say that same thing to God. Good luck, God. Good luck finding me out. Good luck finding where I am. Oh, it might be a Syria, it might be someone else. Oh, good luck. This might sound harsh, but he's going to come. He is coming. And none of us will escape. Do you know what the punishment of our sin is? Death. Death is the punishment. The reason that people die is because they're sinful. That is God's judgment against us. That we will die. None of us can say, good luck, God. I will not be found out. Because every single one of us is guilty. Here's the mistake. The mistake is that we divide the attributes of God. God's wrath is the outworking of His justice. God's mercy is the outworking of His love. No. You see, on the cross, we see the full character of God. His love in His wrath. God is loving us by pouring out His wrath on His Son. That the justice upon His Son is what brings us forgiveness. So that when God comes for you or for me, which He will come, that we would not say, oh, I said a prayer. I did all these good things. Look at what I've done. I'm okay. I'm fine. But instead, we would say, look at Jesus Christ. He paid the price. He is the one that took your wrath for me. I hope every one of you would be saying that to God. That you would be saying, my justice, who I am, is based on what He has done, not on what I can do. That is the good news of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for going against enemies. Thanks for rectifying the things that are wrong in this world and bringing justice to it. And God, thank You for doing that, not to us, but to Your Son, so that we would not bear the brunt of Your wrath, but instead, our chains would fall off, that we no longer would be bound, but that we would be free, knowing what you have done for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's continue in worship. We're going to stand and sing, I Surrender All. I want to reference one thing. Sorry, there's a bibliography. If you ever want to know some of my ideas, they come from here. Um, I read a book later in the week because it was um, uh, given by Sandy Tobias. It was uh, Tozer's book, uh, the, character, is it the Character of the Holy. Is that what it is? The Knowledge of the Holy. Yeah, very good. His chapter on justice is, is good. He has some good things to say. And ladies, I encourage you, if you're in that study, it's a, a good thing to read.
Daniel. 